together. Uh, if you haven't been part of a community group before, we, we'd urge you to be part of one in the future. Uh, we're coming to the end of uh, the current fall season. Um, next Sunday will be the last Sunday in this fall season. And uh, so the following week will be the last week in community groups for the fall. And we'll take a little break around the holidays and then st- uh, jump back in after the new year uh, for a winter season, another 10-week uh, community group season. So you can sign up for a, a group um, uh, during kind of the December time frame. And uh, we'll look forward to, uh, to walking that out together. But today, uh, we come to the ninth, I guess it's, the, it's technically the tenth week in the series on a Sunday morning, but the ninth in terms of community groups. Um, and so we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 15, verses 1 to 39. So if you have a Bible, feel free to turn there, uh, whether it's a physical Bible like this or your device. Uh, either way, you can interact uh, with this text. Um, this morning, we're going we're to consider... The Crucified King. Uh, it's a little bit of a longer text, uh, but regardless, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to read this. So I want you to stand up. I will read through this text after I finish reading. Uh, you can, I, I will uh, say the word of the Lord, and you can respond back, thanks be to God. So uh, listen to the word of the Lord here. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, hang on, I'm in Matthew. I even marked it ahead of time. All right. (laughs) Off to a good start. Mark 15. We'll start in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner from whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you? The king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him 
and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. The word of the Lord. Why don't you remain standing and I'll pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of gathering together. Uh, Lord, to sing, uh, to interact in fellowship. And now, Lord, to interact with your word. Uh, and we thank you for what your word reveals to us, uh, who you are and what you have done for us. And thank you, Lord, that we're gathered together here in this place, but we know countless of other people around the world are gathering on this day to celebrate what you have done in your death and then in your resurrection. And Lord, we know even mysteriously that there is a worship service going on eternally that we are joining with now. We're around your throne, our Lord, thousands, uh, millions, billions Lord, are singing praise to you and declaring, worthy is the Lamb who is slain. And so we join now with all of those people in giving you thanks and praise. So please uh, teach us through your word and uh, align our lives to you, our crucified King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Well, when, uh, when we tell somebody about an event that took place in our lives, you know, we always choose certain details to highlight on in telling a story. Uh, certain details that want to emphasize the point we are trying to make. So we could tell two different people about the same event and choose different details, depending upon the theme that we're trying to get across to the person. Uh, for instance, I could tell you that you know, a couple weeks ago, I played pickleball for the first time uh, with a friend at uh, the course at Bellamy Field. We played for about 45 minutes. It was a beautiful day. We had great exercise. We had a great time. And I was surprised at how easy it was to pick up the sport. Uh, I even won the first two games I played. So I could tell you that version of the story. Or I could tell you that a couple weeks ago, I lost to sneaking Jim Cooper in pickleball. <laughs> Knowing I had never played the sport before, he invited me to Bellamy Fields to play a best-of-seven match. He destroyed me five games to two and laughed about it. <laughs> now, both accounts are absolutely true. 
but different details were highlighted on to get across a different theme, a different point. And when we come to the crucifixion account here in the Gospel of Mark, it is the same account, the same story, the same event that the Gospel writers Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all communicating. But every Gospel writer is choosing different details to focus on because they're not just trying to communicate the facts, they're trying to communicate a message. They're focusing on certain details to tell us something. So this morning, I want us to consider what Mark wants us to know from this account. What does Mark's account of the crucifixion tell us about Jesus? Um, There's really one main thing he wants us to know, and you'll see it comes out again and again. And that is, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Now, this has been Mark's theme all through his gospel account. But here at the crucifixion, this theme, it's like a drumbeat that's getting faster and faster and faster until it comes to a stop. He wants us to know that Jesus is king. Let me walk you through how he's focusing us on this truth here in chapter 15. In Mark 15, uh, verse 2, we see Jesus uh, talking with Pilate. And Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? This is Pilate's question for Jesus. You see, this is why Jesus is on trial. He's not on trial uh, just because uh, Rome was upset with his religious teaching. Uh, He's on trial because the Jewish religious leaders perceive him to be a threat. They have correctly understood Jesus' teaching, all that his miracles are pointing to, that Jesus is claiming to be the promised king that the Old Testament uh, said would come to set right all that has gone wrong in this world. That Jesus is a king, but not a king in the way that they expected. And so the Jewish leaders do not have the authority to execute someone. So they bring him to Pilate. The Roman uh, Empire ruled over Israel at the time, and Pilate is a Roman uh, leader. And so Pilate uh, is now trying Jesus. The, The Jewish leaders bring him I bring Jesus to him. And what Pilate wants to figure out is, is this guy a political threat? That, that's his question. Are you a political threat uh, to Roman rule? Are you going to cause problems here? Uh, and Pilate quickly concludes in, the, concludes in this narrative that Jesus is not a political threat to Roman rule. Uh, that's what he quickly concludes. Uh, but this is the main question he wants to know, is are you king? Now, Pilate continues uh, to talk with Jesus and then with the Jewish religious leaders. And there's a fascinating interaction here as he talks to the religious leaders about Barabbas. In Mark 15, verses 9 and 12, uh, Pilate answered the religious leaders, saying, Do you want me to release for you, again, the king of the Jews? And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with a man you call the king of the Jews? Of the Jews. See, what's taking place here is that there's this tradition where every year uh, a prisoner would be released um, in celebration of, uh, of, of this time of uh, feasting. And Pilate knows that the Jewish religious leaders are jealous or envious of Jesus. He's already concluded this man is not actually a political threat. Uh, this is, in his mind, just kind of like a religious squabble that they're dealing with, and so he's content to let Jesus go. 
but he wants to fulfill this obligation to the crowd, and so he says, who should I release to you? And what's fascinating here is the Jewish religious leaders' response. They stir up the crowd to ask for this guy Barabbas. Now, Barabbas is a threat to the Roman uh, Empire. He already has led, uh, it says in the scriptures, an insurrection where there was murder committed. And so he's been in prison because of his acts um, uh, committing murder during an insurrection against the Roman Empire. And so here we have the Jewish religious leaders asking for this man, Barabbas, to be released, who is a wicked man, and asking instead for Jesus, the rightful king, to be crucified. I mean, the irony is just striking here of what is taking place. But again, Pilate's words to the, relig to the religious leaders are all about Jesus and his kingship. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And then Mark continues in this account, and he highlights what happens to Jesus after this, um, that the soldiers take Jesus away, and, and they begin to uh, mock him. In Mark 15, verses 16 to 18, it says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews! You see all the details that Mark purposely mentions? The purple cloak that's put on him, signifying kind of the, the kind of cloak a king would wear. The crown of thorns woven together, a crown, what a king would wear. They kneel before him uh, in fake homage. They salute him and then say, Hail, King of the Jews. I mean, they are mocking Jesus, yet they do not understand that their words are actually true. And so Mark wants us to get, the, again, the irony of this. These soldiers mocking the rightful king. Again, this theme of king, 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 coming out through Mark's account. And then we move on to actually at Golgotha, the place of the skull. When Jesus was crucified, they affixed a sign above the cross. In Mark 15, verse 26, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. This is what was literally on the cross above Jesus. As people walked by, that's what they read. This is why this man is dying, because he's king of the Jews. Again, king, king, king. And then we see the chief priests and the scribes' words to Jesus as he hung on the cross. Uh, Mark 15, verse 31 and 32. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. As he hangs on the cross, they are purposely mocking him and using this title, King of the Jews, in mockery. Again, King, 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 just resounding in this account. And then um, we come to one of the things that's said in this passage about what happened as Jesus was hanging on the cross. It said that a great darkness came over the land uh, from about noontime to three o'clock. Midday, and all of a sudden, it's like nighttime. This is a supernatural occurrence. That, that, that nature is responding 
to what is happening. And Mark's account doesn't include this detail, but other gospel accounts say that not only was there darkness, but there were great earthquakes at the same time. That, that nature is responding to these events. I love how uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible uh, t- describes this. Um, she writes, Even though it was midday, a dreadful darkness covered the face of the world. The sun could not shine. The earth trembled and quaked. The great mountains shook. Rocks split in two until it seemed that the whole world would break, that creation itself would tear apart. So what's taking place here is what we actually were reading about this morning during our time of uh, singing. Um, in Colossians 1, 16-17, we, we read this verse where it said, For by him, talking about Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. See, Jesus is the, the king of the universe. He has designed and created all that we can see and all that we cannot see. And it says that he holds all that he has made together, meaning he sustains it. He makes life work. And as he hung on the cross, dying, all things began to fall apart. That's what nature is is doing here. Things are falling apart as the rightful king dies. And Mark recounts this for us. And then we last come to the Roman centurion's statement about Jesus as he dies. In Mark 15, verse 39, it says, When the centurion who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, uh, this centurion had witnessed many crucifixions. Um, Unfortunately, this was part of this man's job. Imagine that being your job. Uh, He had witnessed many crucifixions. But something was different about this one. Um, We've already mentioned some of the things that I think this guy recognized. I mean, obviously, if, if there's pitch blackness, pitch darkness in the middle of the day, that's not normal. And so he recognizes what's happening in nature. I think he probably also recognized Jesus' character that was being demonstrated on the cross. I mean, not many people died on, the cro- on a cross um, responding to those that hated them, to those that mocked them with the words of Jesus, forgive them. So as he sees Jesus' character on the cross, he recognizes something not normal, not natural, about how this man is dying. But Mark highlights one thing in particular. He says here that when the centurion saw that in this way he breathed his last, then he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There was something about the way that Jesus took his last breath that made this centurion recognize who Jesus really was. Now, Mark does not highlight what Jesus said at his last breath, but he did say in Mark, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. That's what it says in Mark. With a loud cry, he breathed his last. Now, crucifixion is usually a horribly slow death um, where those being crucified die of asphyxiation, no longer able to breathe because they can't hold themselves up anymore. Usually, those dying by crucifixion die quietly, unable to breathe. But not Jesus. He died, actually, rather quickly. 
shouting. Um, other gospel writers record what Jesus was saying at the end. John says that Jesus' final words were, it is finished. Luke says that Jesus' final words were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. These final words are not the groans of a victim of injustice, but the victorious shout of a divine king. Someone saying, I did it. It's done. I came, I did what I came to do. I mean, when the centurion sees this, he recognizes people don't die this way. <laughs> what this man is doing here um, is something beyond what I understand. He must be what that sign says. The centurion recognizes who Jesus is in the way that he breathed his last. See, Mark is repeating again and again and again in this account that this is Jesus Christ, Son of God, King of Israel, King of the universe. He wants us to know that Jesus is king, but he also wants us to know that Jesus is king like none other. He is king like no other king. I mean, this king triumphs by sacrificial love, not by force. Um, we did not read uh, chapter 14. That'll be part of your reading for this week. But in chapter 14, we see that Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we sang about this this morning, that uh, the, the cup was not removed. In the garden, Jesus prayed to the Father, uh, if it's possible, take this cup from me, this cup of suffering. Um, and he said, but not my will, yours be done. And it says the cup was not removed. But as Jesus prayed that, right as he finished, it says that his disciple Judas entered the garden, leading um, religious leaders and soldiers to come and have him arrested. And that when the soldiers came and arrested Jesus... Uh, we see that his other disciples who were with him said, Lord, should we at this point strike with our swords? Like, this is going to be a problem for your mission if you're arrested, right? Shouldn't we attack? Shouldn't we use force? And Jesus said, oh, actually, before Jesus said no, they, they didn't even let him answer the question, Peter did attack and lopped off the ear of the high priest's servant, to which Jesus says, no more of this. Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father, and he will at once send more than twelve legions of angels? And then he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard, and all who had come for him, he said, Am I leading a rebellion? That you have come at me with swords and clubs. You see, this is what most kings do. They come with force to overcome their opposition. They, they bring about their rule through their own power and might. And Jesus says, that's not my way. Jesus' way is different than every other king. He triumphs by sacrificial love, not by force. And he could have in a moment wiped out his opposition with a word. Twelve legions of angels descending from heaven, uh, the Roman Empire is no match. And he doesn't. He allows the events to proceed. And he conquers through the cross. That was his plan for victory. This king triumphs by sacrificial love, not by force. And also we see here that this king is more faithful than we can ever imagine. Uh, Mark 15 not only highlights um, Jesus as king, it also highlights why this king had to die. It shows us in many ways, the worst of humanity. 
When we look at the pictures of humanity in Mark 15, it's not pretty. I mean, just consider the characters that are, that are mentioned here. We have Pilate, now, this political leader who was in a place to execute justice. I mean, that's what he should do, is execute justice, determine right from wrong. And he realized quickly, this man is actually not guilty of the crimes he's being um, accused of. Pilate knows it. He knows it. So what would be just in that case would be for him to free Jesus. But Pilate does what so many political leaders do. He's more about maintaining his position and his influence than actually carrying out the justice that he could do. So Pilate is concerned mostly about himself and his influence and cares nothing for Jesus, this man who is enduring great injustice. We see, really, in Pilate, the political earthly leaders for what they really are. So often, we are self-centered in uh, this kind of leadership given to us by God. We see Pilate. We see the religious leaders, the chief priests and scribes of Israel, the people who are steeped in the word of God, who know all the prophecies, all the promises about God sending a king to come and deliver. And we see them completely, completely reject Jesus. The one that they've been taught, I mean, they have talked about the Messiah. They've told people, one day the Messiah will come. And when he comes, they miss him because they are so interested, and again, their own position, their, their own power, and they miss the king right before them. And more than that, they begin to mock the king. And then they ask for Barabbas to be released instead of their king. I mean, this is religious leaders at their worst. And then we see the crowds in the story. I mean, we know that the crowds, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, not even a week prior to this, were crying out in worship, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were so excited about Jesus, welcoming him in. And then they are so easily swayed, stirred up and led astray. They easily fall victim to the agendas of their leaders and the drama of, really, the, the local news cycle of the day. These crowds are easily led astray. And then we see the Roman soldiers, these military men of honor who lived under authority. Instead, they're making sport of Jesus' misfortune. And then we see the disciples, or rather, we don't see the disciples in Mark 15. Where are they? Well, we know that Judas has betrayed him, Peter has denied him, and most of them have abandoned him. This is humanity. <laughs> Pilate, the religious leaders, the crowds, the Roman soldiers, the disciples. And if I'm honest, I can see myself in those people. I mean, how would you respond if you were treated by those kind of people as Jesus was treated, unjustly, beaten, tortured, led to your execution? What would be your response? I know my response would not be Jesus' response. I mean, those that are close to me have told me before that you are very patient until you are not, which they didn't mean as a compliment. At some point, there's a breaking point. I can only take it so long. I think all of us kind of have that breaking point, some longer than others. How does Jesus do this? How does he never hit a breaking point? I mean, Mark 15 shows us humanity at its worst. 
and humanity at its best in Jesus Christ. Mark wants us to see Jesus as king, but Jesus as king like none other. But Mark wants us more to do more than just see who Jesus is. He wants us to see what's happened in Jesus' crucifixion. Um, he wants us to, to check out what took place when Jesus died. Now remember, uh, we said this uh, the very first week of this series, that, that this gospel story of Mark, it's all about good news. Uh, verse 1 of this whole book says, the, um, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that gospel, word gospel, it just literally means good news. That Mark is not writing us a whole book on spiritual advice, good advice for life. Here's what you should do if you're to have a better life. Here's what you should do if God's going to accept you. Now, there's a lot of good advice in Christianity. There is. But primarily, the message of Christianity is gospel. It is good news. Something has happened in history that has changed the game. And it's something that we did not do, uh, nor can we attain to. It's something that was done for us. So Mark is telling us what Jesus has done for us in this gospel. And so Mark highlights a couple things in particular that Jesus did on the cross. And, and through seeing these details, we can understand what happened for us in Jesus' crucifixion. We see first Jesus' words on the cross that Mark chose to record. In Mark 15, verse 34, we read, uh, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus said other words on the cross. And the other gospel writers record some of those words. But Mark only records these words. Mark wants us to, to focus on these words and, and what they mean. You may be familiar with some of Jesus' other words. On the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He said, today, you will be with me in paradise, to one of the thieves hanging on the cross. To his mother, he said, woman, behold thy son. And to John, he said, behold thy mother. He said, I thirst. He said, it is finished. He said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. But Mark just focuses on this phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think that Mark chose these words to show us what was happening on the cross. Because what was happening was far more than just Jesus' physical suffering. Uh, the scripture writers go on to tell us that on the cross, King Jesus took upon himself the sin of humanity. And he experienced the God-forsakenness of our sin. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, this is the consequence of sin. Sin causes forsakenness in relationship. And we see this in our human relationships. I mean, if you wrong somebody, there's a breaking in the relationship. And depending on the significance of the wrong, it can be a significant breaking. And what's happened between humanity and God is a great deal of breakage. And you know what it feels like when you've done something wrong and you've uh, said something you shouldn't have said uh, to a, a loved one, you've done something you shouldn't have done. There's a weight that you feel uh, because you know there's a sense of forsakenness there. Can you imagine 
Um, that feeling multiplied by billions sitting on you. It says that Jesus took the sin of the world upon himself. The weight of sin of every human being, every sin, that forsakenness sitting upon Jesus. See, this is a forsakenness like we will never come close to knowing. It's horrible to know our own forsakenness, but Jesus knew the forsakenness of every single member of the human race on the cross. Because he did this, because he took the sin of humanity into himself on the cross and experienced our forsakenness, he's made something else possible. Because there's another detail that Mark highlights here. He says that at the moment Jesus died, it says the curtain was torn. Mark 15, verse 37 to 38. It says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Mark wants us to know this detail, what happened when Jesus died. Uh, this curtain he's talking about, it was in the temple in Jerusalem. And if you're unfamiliar with the temple, um, you know, God had, had given specific instructions to his people about how to construct the temple. You know, there is a series of courtyards, um, and depending upon who you were, meant how far in you could enter. And at the very center of the temple is a place called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And this uh, room was separated by the curtain from the holy place. And into the most holy place, only the high priest could enter, and only once a year. Um, and he went in there once a year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the sins of the people. Now this curtain was pretty impressive. It was 60 feet wide, 30 feet tall, and four inches thick. Uh, this curtain doesn't tear easily. And at Jesus' death, it says this curtain is torn, and not just torn, but top to bottom. Top to bottom. It's not people going up, it's God coming down. Top to bottom. Now, the room that was closed to us, and it was closed because it was known that God's presence was in this room in a way that it was not elsewhere. Inside the holy place, where the most holies, uh, was the Ark of the Covenant. And God's people had brought the Ark as they came uh, through the, the wilderness. They received the law. They passed through the Jordan River. And God's presence went with them. And then when they came into the land, they built the temple. And, and this Ark was placed in there, signifying God's presence at the center of God's people. But the image was, sinful people can't go into the presence of a holy God and live. And now in Jesus Christ, the game has changed. It says the veil is torn. And what this means is not just the high priest, but anybody, anybody, even the thief that was being crucified beside Jesus could walk right into this room. That God's presence is now open because of what Jesus has done. See, in the cross of Jesus, the God-forsakenness of our sin has been removed, and the way has been eternally opened into the presence of God. Well, if that's what happened in Jesus' crucifixion, what are we to do about it? What are we to do in response to Jesus' crucifixion? And I want to highlight three responses, and my guess is, I think all three of these are important for us, but I would encourage you to consider, is there one today that kind of lands more upon your mind and your heart than others. 
Um, that's kind of how God works in our lives. He usually highlights one thing at a time. So, so which of these kind of lands upon your heart uh, today in a way that God would have you to follow up? Uh, first way that we are to respond to Jesus' crucifixion. We're to worship the crucified king. We're to worship the crucified king. Now, um, uh, I've mentioned this many times before. You probably have heard it from others. The word worship, it just literally means worth-ship. It's an old English word, worth-ship. Uh, worship means that you assign worth or value to a person or a thing. So you understand, we all worship we all assign value. We all then give ourselves to people, to careers, to possessions. This is, the human experience is a worshiping experience. The question is, who or what will we worship? And what we see here revealed is there's no one worthy of our worship like Jesus. And so we're encouraged and invited now to pour out our full devotion, our full worship to the rightful king. Uh, listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 22, and how it interprets what Jesus did on the cross, and then our invitation now. In Hebrews 10, 19 to 22, we read, Therefore, brothers, since we have, we have confidence to enter the most holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Here's the invitation. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, or clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you hear the invitation there? Because of what Jesus did, because he went through the curtain, because it is open, let us draw near. God's saying, come in. See, this is worship where we come in to God's presence and we give him we, the, the value, the worth, the adoration, the love that he deserves. Um, often when we talk about worshiping, I think a lot of pastors really want to focus upon the fact that worship is more than what we do on a Sunday morning. I mean, worship is what we do with our whole lives. But this morning, I actually want us to focus on what we do on Sunday morning, because it's not less than that. Do you realize what a privilege this is that we get to gather here this morning? sing the songs that we do, interact with one another, hear this word that is taught. Um, this is an opportunity for worship, um, which is a far greater privilege than we really grasp. And so when we come in together, we gather and, and we worship, I want to encourage you to really lean in. Um, wh when you sing the songs that we sing, uh, don't just sing songs about God, sing songs to God. You're actually communing with him. Uh, when you're praying or reading a scripture, really focus on you're entering, going through the veil, entering into God's presence. There is something special and unique that happens in the gathered life of God's people when we worship. And I want to really encourage you um, to see the privilege that it is and lean into it. Worship the crucified king. Uh, second response. Identify with the crucified king. Identify with the crucified king. Uh, Galatians 2.20, famous verse. The Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, this is a very mysterious verse, and we won't unpack it all. 
But what Paul is saying here is he is identifying himself with Jesus Christ. Somehow, mysteriously, when Jesus died, I died. We said earlier that our sin was totally taken by Jesus Christ on the cross. It's as if we were there when that was happening. Paul is saying, I have been crucified with Christ. And what that means is now, it's no longer just me living my life. It is Christ in me and Christ with me. My, Christ, my life is for Christ. So when he thinks about himself, he's no longer defining himself and his purposes in life just based on his own desires and agendas. He's thinking about what Christ has done and now what Christ wants him to do. And so he's identifying himself with Jesus because he has become joined to Jesus by faith. See, this is the Christian experience, is there is a joining of our lives with Jesus' life. In some ways, it's like a marriage where two become one. And in a marriage, when two become one, what is yours is mine, what is mine is yours. So if one partner comes into the marriage, maybe with a truckload of debt, what's mine is now yours, right? And if one comes with uh, maybe a great house, what's mine is yours. There's this joining. And for us, we bring a truckload of debt into this relationship. What's mine is now Christ's. And Christ brings all the righteousness we could ever want, all the love we could ever need. What's his is ours. And so when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are joined with him. This is what it means to become a Christian. We place our faith in him, trusting that we are now joined. He's taking our sin, us receiving his righteousness. Jesus has died to join himself to us. The question is, have you joined yourself to him? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Um, I know many here would love to talk further with you. I would love to talk further with you if you have questions about that. This is why Jesus died on the cross, to join himself to us. Last response, third one. Our invitation is to follow the crucified king. We're to worship him, we're to identify with him, and we are to follow the crucified king. Last text of scripture, 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. Uh, Peter writes here, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, what Peter is saying here is that the cross, and I'm going to use some, some uh, theological terms that explain it, okay? The cross is not just only for our justification. The cross is also for our sanctification. You see, justification means uh, it's how we are made right in our standing before God. It's a legal kind of word. When you are, if you are accused of a crime and then declared um, not guilty, um, there's a, a justification, a statement, a declaration made. And in Jesus' death, we are declared righteous. Our sins no longer counted to us, but Jesus' righteousness counted to us. The cross justifies us before God. But that's not all Peter is saying. The cross is for our sanctification. The cross is our example of how to live that Jesus actually invites us to take up a cross. So Peter is writing to Christians who are living in the Roman Empire who are badly mistreated, who are persecuted, 
and he's writing to them about how they should respond to those that were, that were mistreating them. And he's saying to them, listen, just because you are reviled and mocked and mistreated, you're not to respond that way to others. Because Jesus did not respond that way to those that did that to him. That instead, you are to return mocking with blessing. Uh, we are to advance Christ's cause with the gospel, not with force. Uh, you see, it's a different way that God is calling us to live. And this is the way of victory. Jesus is not offering us this pattern of life um, as a, uh, a test to prove ourselves. He's offering it to us as the way to live. Sacrificial love is the way we were made to live. And when we lay our lives down for others, as Jesus laid his down for us, we actually discover true life. So this gets worked out in many ways in our lives. It gets worked out in our closest relationships. You know, in our closest relationships, we do have friction, don't we? We, we nick and ding one another. We wrong each other. And when we follow the cross pattern, when we choose not to try to hold others' sin over them, try to enforce their badness, when we forgive, when we absorb hurt, uh, we are following in the way of the cross. Um, maybe it's in the workplace. I mean, a lot of times in our, in our world, you advance through manipulation um, or workplace politics, but the goal is to get ahead. And, and Jesus says th that's not the way. The way is actually a way of love, a way of service. When we, again, live for the good of others, not just ourselves, we discover uh, the cross-shaped life in all its blessing. Or maybe in our world, as we enter uh, all the, the tumult of uh, the larger political scene, uh, this is not normal. People that do not respond, reviling with reviling. People that are not trying to get their agenda forward by force but are actually trusting that Christ-like character. And the advance of the gospel is the way that God is working in the world today. You see, the way of the cross is a different way, and it's a powerful way, because it's the Jesus way. Jesus is king, and he is king like none other. And he has taken the God-forsakenness of our sin upon himself and opened the way to God's presence now and forever. The question for us is, will we worship him? Will we identify with him? And will we follow him? I invite you to do so. Will you stand with me? Close with uh, prayer and another closing song.